Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 2. Chapter 4. The Counterpane. Upon waking next morning about daylight, I found Queequeg's arm thrown over me in the most loving and affectionate manner. You had almost thought I had been his wife. The counterpane was of patchwork, full of odd little party-colored squares and triangles, and this arm of his, tattooed all over with an interminable Cretan labyrinth of a figure, no two parts of which were of one precise shade, owing, I suppose, to his keeping his arm at sea unmethodically in sun and shade, his shirt sleeves irregularly rolled up at various times, this same arm of his, I say, looked for all the world like a strip of that same patchwork quilt. Indeed, partly lying on it as the arm did when I first awoke, I could hardly tell it from the quilt. They so blended their hues together, and it was only by the sense of weight and pressure that I could tell that Queequeg was hugging me. My sensations were strange. Let me try to explain them. When I was a child, I well remembered a somewhat similar circumstance that befell me. Whether it was a reality or a dream, I never could entirely settle. The circumstance was this. I had been cutting up some caper or other. I think it was trying to crawl up the chimney, as I had seen a little sweep do a few days previous, and my stepmother, who somehow or other was all the time whipping me or sending me to bed supperless, my mother dragged me by the legs out of the chimney and packed me off to bed, though it was only two o'clock in the afternoon on the 21st June, the longest day of the year in our hemisphere. I felt dreadfully, but there was no help for it. So up the stairs I went to my little room in the third floor, undressed myself as slowly as possible so as to kill time, and with a bitter sigh got between the sheets. I lay there dismally calculating that sixteen entire hours must elapse before I could hope for a resurrection. Sixteen hours in bed! The small of my back ached to think of it, and it was so light, too, the sun shining in at the window and a great rattling of the coaches in the streets and the sound of gay voices all over the house. I felt worse and worse. At last, I got up, dressed, and softly going down on my stocking feet, sought out my stepmother, and suddenly threw myself at her feet, beseeching her as a particular favor to give me a good slippering for my misbehavior. Anything, indeed, but condemning me to lie abed such an unendurable length of time. But she was the best and most conscientious of stepmothers, and back I had to go to my room. For several hours I lay there, broad awake, feeling a great deal worse than I have ever done since, even from the greatest subsequent misfortunes. At last I must have fallen into some troubled nightmare of a doze, and slowly waking from it, half-steeped in dreams, I opened my eyes, and before, sunlit room was now wrapped in outer darkness. Instantly, I felt a shock running through all my frame. Nothing was to be seen, nothing was to be heard, but a supernatural hand seemed placed in mine. 
My arm hung over the counterpane, and the nameless, unimaginable, silent form or phantom to which the hand belonged seemed closely seated by my bedside. For what seemed ages piled on ages, I lay there frozen, with the most awful fears, not daring to drag away my hand, yet ever thinking that if I could but stir it one single inch, the horrid spell would be broken. I knew not how this consciousness at last glided away from me, but waking in the morning, I shudderingly remembered it all, and for days and weeks and months afterwards, I lost myself in confounding attempts to explain the mystery. Nay, to this very hour, I often puzzle myself with it. Now, take away the awful fear, and my sensations at feeling the supernatural hand in mine were very similar, in their strangeness, to those which I experienced on waking up and seeing Queequeg's pagan arm thrown round me. But at length, all the past night's events soberly recurred, one by one, in fixed reality, and then I lay only alive to the comical predicament. For though I tried to move his arm, unlock his bridegroom clasp, yet, sleeping as he was, he still hugged me tightly, as though naught but death should part us twain. I now strove to rouse him. Queequeg! But his only answer was a snore. I then rolled over, my neck feeling as if it were in a horse collar, and suddenly felt a slight scratch. Throwing aside the counterpane, there lay the tomahawk by the savage's side, as if it were a hatchet-faced baby. A pretty pickle, truly, thought I. A bed here in a strange house in, a broad, in the broad day with a cannibal and a tomahawk? Queequeg, in the name of goodness, Queequeg, wake! At length, by dint of much wriggling and a loud and incessant expostulations upon the unbecomingness of his hugging a fellow male in that matrimonial sort of style, I succeeded in extracting a grunt. And presently he drew back his arm, shook himself all over like a Newfoundland dog just from the water, and sat up in bed, stiff as a pike staff, looking at me and rubbing his eyes as if he did not altogether remember how I came to be there, though a dim consciousness of knowing something about me seemed slowly dawning over him. Meanwhile, I lay quietly eyeing him, having no serious misgivings now, and bent upon narrowly observing so curious a creature. When at last his mind seemed made up, touching the character of his bedfellow, and he became, as it were, reconciled to the fact, he jumped out upon the floor and by certain signs and sounds gave me to understand that, if it pleased me, he would dress first and then leave me to dress afterwards, leaving the whole apartment to myself. Thinks I, Queequeg, under the circumstances, this is a very civilized overture, but the truth is, these savages have an innate sense of decency. Say what you will. It is a marvelous how essentially polite they are. I pay this particular compliment to Queequeg because he treated me with so much civility and consideration while I was guilty of great rudeness, staring at him from the bed and watching all his toilet motions, for the time my curiosity getting the better of my breeding. Nevertheless, a man like Queequeg you don't see every day. He and his ways were well worth unusual regarding. He commenced dressing at top by donning his beaver hat, a very tall one by and by, and then, still minus his trousers, he hunted up his boots. What under the heavens he did it for, I cannot tell, but his next movement was to crush himself, boots in hand and hat on, under the bed, when, from sundry violent gaspings and strainings, I inferred he was hard at work booting himself, though by no law of propriety I had ever heard of is any man required to be private when putting on his boots. But... 
Queequeg, do you see, was a creature in the transition stage, neither caterpillar nor butterfly. He was just enough civilized to show off his outlandishness in the strangest possible manners. His education was not yet completed. He was an undergraduate. If he had not been a small degree civilized, he very probably would have not troubled himself with boots after all. But then, if he had not been still a savage, he never would have dreamt of getting under the bed to put them on. At last he emerged with his hat very much dented and crushed down over his eyes and began creaking and limping about the room as if not much being accustomed to boots. His pair of damp wrinkled cowhide ones, probably not made to order either, rather pinched and tormented him at the first go of a bitter cold morning. Seeing now that there were no curtains to the window and that the street being very narrow, the house opposite commanded a plain view into the room, and observing more and more the indecorous figure that Queequeg made, staving about with little else but his hat and boots on, I begged him as well as I could to accelerate his toilet somewhat, and particularly to get into his pantaloons as soon as possible. He complied and then proceeded to wash himself. At that time in the morning, any Christian would have washed his face, but Queequeg, to my amazement, contented himself with restricting his ablutions to his chest, arms, and hands. He then donned his waistcoat and, taking a piece of hard soap from the wash center table, dipped it into the water and commenced lathering his face. I was watching to see where he kept his razor when, lo and behold, he takes the harpoon from the bed corner, slips out the long wooden stock, unsheathes the head, wets it a little on his boot, and striding up to the bit of mirror against the wall, begins a vigorous scraping, or rather, harpooning, of his cheeks. Thinks I, Queequeg, this is using Roger's best cutlery with a vengeance. Afterwards, I wondered the less at this operation when I came to know of what fine steel the head of a harpoon is made and how exceedingly sharp the long straight edges are always kept. The rest of his toilet was soon achieved, and he proudly marched out of the room, wrapped up in his great pilot monkey jacket and sporting his harpoon like a marshal's baton. Chapter 5. Breakfast. I quickly followed suit, and descending into the barroom accosted the grinning landlord very pleasantly. I cherished no malice towards him, though he had been skylarking with me not a little in the matter of my bedfellow. However, a good laugh is a mighty good thing, and rather too scarce a good thing, the more is the pity. So if any one man, in his own proper person, affords stuff for a good joke to anybody, let him not be backward, but let him cheerfully allow himself to spend and be spent in that way. And the man that has anything bountifully laughable about him, be sure that there is more in that man than you perhaps think of. The barroom was now full of the boarders who had been dropping in the night previous and whom I had not as yet had a good look at. They were nearly all whalemen, chief mates and second mates and third mates and sea carpenters and sea coopers and sea blacksmiths and harpooners and shipkeepers, a brown and brawny company with bosky beards and unshorn shaggy set, all wearing monkey jackets for morning gowns. You could pretty plainly tell how long each one had been ashore. This young fellow's healthy cheek is like a sun-toasted pear in hue, and would seem to smell about as musky. He cannot have been there three days landed from his Indian voyage. That man next to him looks a few shades lighter. You might say a touch of satin wood is in him, in the complexion of a third still lingers a tropic tawn, but slightly bleached withal. He, doubtless, has tarried whole weeks ashore, but who could show a cheek like Queequeg? which, barred with various tints, seemed like the Andes' western slope to show forth in one array contrasting climates, zone by zone. 
Grub ho! Now, cried the landlord, flinging open a door, and in we went to breakfast. They say that men who have seen the world thereby become quite at ease in manner, quite self-possessed in company. Not always, though. Ledyard, the great New England traveler, and Mungo Park, the Scotch one of all men, they possessed the least assurance in the parlor. But perhaps the mere crossing of Siberia in a sledge drawn by dogs, as Ledyard did, or the taking of a long solitary walk in an empty, on an empty stomach in the Negro heart of Africa, which is the sum of poor Mungo's performances, was... This kind of travel, I say, may not be the very best mode of attaining a high social polish. Still, for the most part, that sort of thing is to be had anywhere. These reflections just here are occasioned by the circumstances that, after we were all seated at the table, and I was preparing to hear some good stories about whaling, to my no small surprise, nearly every man maintained a profound silence. And not only that, but they looked embarrassed. Yes, here were a set of sea dogs, many of whom, without the slightest bashfulness, had boarded great whales on the high seas, entire strangers to them, and dueling them dead without winking, and yet here they sat at a social breakfast table, all of the same calling, all of kindred tastes, looking round as sheepishly at each other as though they had never been out of sight of some sheepfold among the green mountains. A curious sight, these bashful bears, these timid warrior whalemen. But as for Queequeg, why Queequeg sat there among them, at the head of the table too, it so chanced, as cool as an icicle. To be sure, I cannot say much for his breeding. His greatest admirer could not have cordially justified his bringing his harpoon into breakfast with him, and using it there without ceremony, reaching over the table with it to the imminent jeopardy of many heads and grappling the beefsteaks towards him, but that was certainly very coolly done by him, and everyone knows that in most people's estimation to do anything coolly is to do it genteelly. We will not speak of all of Queequeg's peculiarities here, how he eschewed coffee and hot rolls and applied his undivided attention to beefsteaks done rare, enough that when breakfast was over he withdrew like the rest to the public room, lighted his tomahawk pipe, and was sitting there quietly digesting and smoking with his inseparable hat on when I sallied out for a stroll. Chapter 6. The Street if I had been astonished at first catching a glimpse of so outlandish an individual as Queequeg circulating among the polite society of a civilized town, that astonishment soon departed upon taking my first daylight stroll through the streets of New Bedford. In thoroughfares nigh the docks, any considerable seaport will frequently offer to view the queerest-looking nondescripts from foreign parts. Even in Broadway and Chestnut Streets, Mediterranean mariners will sometimes jostle the affrighted ladies. Regent Street is not unknown to Lascars and Malays, and at Bombay, in the Apollo Green, live Yankees have often scared the natives. But New Bedford beats all, Water Street and Wapping. In these last-mentioned haunts, you see only sailors, but in New Bedford, actual cannibals stand chatting at street corners, savages outright, many of whom yet carry on their bones unholy flesh. It makes a stranger stare. But besides the Fijians, Tonga Tubors, Aromangoans, Panagans, Bringians, and besides the wild specimens of the whaling craft, which unheeded reel about the streets, you will see other sights still more curious, certainly more comical. There weekly arrive in this town scores of green Vermonters and New Hampshiremen, 
all a thirst for gain and glory in the fishery. They are mostly young of stalwart frames, fellows who have felled forests and now seek to drop the axe and snatch the whale lance. Many are as green as the green mountains whence they came. In some things you would think them but a few hours old. Look there! That chap strutting round the corner, he wears a beaver hat and a swallow-tailed coat, girdled with a sailor belt and a sheath knife. Here comes another with a sou'wester and a bombazine cloak. No town-bred dandy will compare with a country-bred one. I mean a downright bumpkin dandy, a fellow that in the dog days will mow his two acres in buckskin gloves for fear of tanning his hands. Now when a country dandy like this takes it into his head to make a distinguished reputation, he joins the great whale fishery. You should see the comical things he does upon reaching the seaport. In bespeaking his sea outfit, he orders bell buttons to the waistcoats, straps on his canvas trousers. Ah, poor hayseed. How bitterly will burst those straps in the first howling gale when thou art driven, straps, buttons and all, down the throat of the tempest. But think not that this famous town has only harpooners, cannibals, and bumpkins to show her visitors. Not at all. Still, New Bedford is a queer place. Had it not been for us whalemen, that tract of land would this day perhaps have been in as howling a condition as the coast of Labrador. As it is, parts of her backcountry are enough to frighten one. They look so bony. The town itself is perhaps the dearest place to live in in all of New England. It is a land of oil, true enough, but not like Canaan, a land also of corn and wine. The streets do not run with milk, nor in the springtime are they paved with fresh eggs. Yet, in spite of this, nowhere in all America will you find more patrician-like houses, parks, gardens more opulent than in New Bedford. Whence came they? How planted upon this once scraggy scoria of a country? Go, and gaze upon the iron emblematical harpoons round yonder lofty mansion, and your question will be answered. Yes, all these brave houses and flowery gardens came from the Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian oceans. One and all, they were harpooned and dragged up hither from the bottom of the sea. Can Herr Alexander perform a feat like that? In New Bedford, fathers, they say, give whales for dowers to their daughters and portion off their nieces with a few porpoises apiece. You must go to New Bedford to see a brilliant wedding, for, they say, they have reservoirs of oil in every house and every night recklessly burn their lengths in spermaceti candles. In summertime, the town is sweet to see, full of fine maples, long avenues of green and gold, and in August, high in air, the beautiful and bountiful horse chestnuts, candelabra-wise, proffer the passerby their tapering upright cones of congregated blossoms. So omnipotent is art, which in many a district of New Bedford has superinduced bright terraces of flowers upon the barren refuse rocks thrown aside at creation's final day. And the women of New Bedford, they bloom like their own red roses. Roses only bloom in summer, whereas the fine carnation of their cheeks is perennial as sunlight in the seventh heavens. Elsewhere, match that bloom of theirs, ye cannot. Save in Salem, where they tell me the young girls breathe such musk that sailor sweethearts smell them miles offshore, as though they were drawing nigh the odorous Moluccas instead of the Puritanic sands. Chapter 7 The Chapel in this same New Bedford, there stands a whaleman's chapel, 
and few are the moody fishermen bound for the Indian Ocean or Pacific who fail to make a Sunday visit to the spot. I am sure that I did not. Returning from my first morning stroll, I again sallied upon this special errand. The sky had changed from clear, sunny cold to driving sleet and mist. Wrapping myself in my shaggy jacket of the cloth called bearskin, I found my way against the stubborn storm. Entering, I found a small scattered congregation of sailors, and sailors' wives and widows. A muffled silence reigned, only broken at times by the shrieks of the storm. Each silent worshipper seemed purposefully sitting apart from the other, as if each silent grief were insular and incommunicable. The chaplain had not yet arrived, and there these silent islands of men and women sat steadfastly eyeing several marble tablets with black borders, masoned into the wall on either side of the pulpit. Three of them ran something like the following, but I do not pretend to quote. Sacred to the memory of John Talbot, who at the age of 18 was lost overboard near the Isle of Desolation off Patagonia, November 1st, 1836. This tablet is erected to his memory by his sister. Sacred to the memory of Robert Long, Willis Ellery, Nathan Coleman, Walter Canney, Seth Macy, and Samuel Gleek, forming one of the boat's crews of the ship Eliza, who were towed out of sight by a whale on the offshore ground in the Pacific, December 31st, 1839. This marble is here placed by their surviving shipmates. Sacred to the memory of the late Captain Ezekiel Hardy, who in the bows of his boat was killed by a sperm whale on the coast of Japan, August 3rd, 1833. This tablet is erected to his memory by his widow. Shaking off the sleet from my ice-glazed hat and jacket, I seated myself near the door and turning sideways was surprised to see Queequeg near me. Affected by the solemnity of the scene, there was a wandering gaze of incredulous curiosity in his countenance. This savage was the only person present who seemed to notice my entrance because he was the only one who could not read, and therefore was not reading those frigid inscriptions on the wall. Whether any of the relatives of the seamen whose names appeared there were now among the congregation, I knew not, but so many are the unrecorded accidents in the fishery, and so plainly did several women present wear the countenance, if not the trappings of some unceasing grief, that I felt sure that here before me were assembled those in whose unhealing hearts the sight of those bleak tablets sympathetically caused the old wounds to bleed afresh. Oh! Ye whose dead lie buried beneath the green grass, who standing among flowers can say, Here, here lies my beloved. Ye know not the desolation that broods in bosoms like these. What bitter blanks in those black-bordered marbles which cover no ashes. What despair in those immovable inscriptions. What deadly voids and unbidden infidelities in the lines that seem to gnaw upon all faith and refuse resurrections to the beings who have been placelessly perished without a grave. As well might those tablets stand in the cave of Elephanta as here. In what census of living creatures the dead of mankind are included, why is it not that a universal proverb says of them that they tell no tales? though containing more secrets than all the Goodwin Sands. 
How is it that to his name who yesterday departed from the other world we prefix so significant and infidel a word, and yet do not thus entitle him, if he but embarks for the remotest indies of this living earth, why the live insurance companies pay death forfeitures upon immortals, in what eternal unstirring paralysis and deadly hopeless trance yet lies antique Adam who died sixty round centuries ago? How is it that we still refuse to be comforted for those who ne we nevertheless maintain are dwelling in unspeakable bliss. Why all the living so strive to hush all the dead? Wherefore, by the rumor of a knocking in a tomb will terrify a whole city? All these things are not without their meanings. But faith, like a jackal, feeds among the tombs. And even from those dead doubts, she gathers her most vital hope. It needs scarcely be told with what feelings on the eve of a Nantucket voyage I regarded those marble tablets, and by the murky light of that darkened, doleful day read the fate of the whaleman who had gone before me. Yes, Ishmael, the same fate may be thine. But somehow I grew merry again. Delightful inducements to embark, fine chance for promotion, it seems. A, a stove boat will make me an immortal by brevet. Yes, there is death in this business of whaling, a speechlessly quick, chaotic bundling of a man into eternity, but what then? Methinks we have hugely mistaken this matter of life and death. Methinks that what they call my shadow here on earth is my true substance. Methinks that in looking at things spiritual, we are too much like oysters observing the sun through the water and thinking that thick water, the thinnest of air. Methinks my body is but the lees of my better being. In fact, take my body who will. Take it, I say. It is not me. And therefore, three cheers for Nantucket, and come a stove boat and stove body when they will, for stave my soul, Jove himself cannot. Chapter 8. The Pulpit I had not been seated very long ere a man of certain venerable robustness entered, and immediately as the storm-pelted door flew back upon admitting him, a quick regardful eye of him by all the congregation sufficiently attested that this fine old man was the chaplain. Yes, it was the famous Father Mapple, so called by the whalemen among whom he was a very great favorite. He had been a sailor and a harpooner in his youth, but for many years past had dedicated his life to the ministry. At the time I now write of, Father Mapple was in the hardy winter of a healthy old age, that sort of old age which seems merging into a second flowering youth, for among all the fissures of his wrinkles there shone certain mild gleams of a newly developing bloom, the spring verdure peeping forth even beneath February snow. No one, having previously heard his history, could for the first time behold Father Mapple without the utmost interest because there were certain engrafted clerical peculiarities about him, imputable to that adventurous maritime life he had led. When he entered, I observed that he carried no umbrella and certainly had not come in his carriage, for his tarpaulin hat ran down with melting sleet, and his great pilot cloth jacket seemed almost to drag him to the floor with the weight of the water it had absorbed. However, hat and coat and overshoes were one by one removed and hung up in a little space in an adjacent corner where, arrayed in a decent suit, he quietly approached the pulpit. 
Like most old-fashioned pulpits, it was a very lofty one, and since irregular stairs to such a height would, from its long angle with the floor, seriously contract the already small area of the chapel, the architect, it seemed, had acted upon the hint of Father Mapple and furnished the pulpit without a stairs, substituting a perpendicular side ladder, like those used in mounting a ship from a boat at sea. The wife of a whaling captain had provided the chapel with a handsome pair of red-worsted man-ropes for this ladder, which, being itself nicely headed and stained with a mahogany color, the whole contrivance, considering what manner of chapel it was, seemed by no means in bad taste. Halting for an instant at the foot of the ladder and with both hands grasping the ornamental knobs of the man-ropes, Father Mapple cast a look upwards. And then, with a truly sailor-like but still reverential dexterity, hand over hand, mounted the steps as if ascending the maintop of his vessel. The perpendicular parts of this side ladder, as is usually the case with swinging ones, were of cloth-covered rope, only the rounds were of wood, so that at every step there was a joint. At my first glimpse of the pulpit, it had not escaped me that, however convenient for a ship, these joints in the present instance seemed unnecessary, for I was not prepared to see Father Mapple, after gaining the height, slowly turn round and, stooping over the pulpit, deliberately drag up the ladder step by step till the hole was deposited within, leaving him impregnable in his little Quebec. I pondered some time without fully comprehending the reason for this, Father Mapple enjoyed such a wide reputation for sincerity and sanctity that I could not suspect him of courting notoriety by any mere tricks of the stage. No, thought I, there must be some sober reason for this thing. Furthermore, it must symbolize something unseen. Can it be, then, that by the act of physical isolation he signifies his spiritual withdrawal for the time from all outward-worldly ties and connections? Yes. For, replenished with the meat and the wine of the words, to the faithful man of God, this pulpit, I see, is a self-containing stronghold, a lofty Ehrenbreitstein, with a perennial well of water within the walls. But the side ladder was not the only strange feature of the place. Borrowing from the chaplain's former seafarings, between the marble cenotaphs on either side of the pulpit, the wall which formed its back was adorned with a large painting representing a gallant ship beating against a terrible storm off a lee coast of black rocks and snowy breakers. But high above the flying scud and dark rolling clouds, there floated a little islet of sunlight, from which beamed forth an angel's face. And this bright face shed a distinct spot of radiance upon the ship's tossing deck, something akin to that silver plate now inserted into the victory's plank where Nelson fell. Ah, noble ship, the angel seemed to say, beat on, beat on, thou noble ship, and bear a hardy helm, for lo, the sun is breaking through, the clouds are rolling off, serenest azure is at hand. Nor was the pulpit itself without a trace of the same sea taste that had achieved the ladder and the picture. Its paneled front was in the likeness of a ship's bluff bows, and the Holy Bible rested on a projecting piece of scrollwork fashioned after a ship's fiddle-headed beak. What could be more full of meaning? For the pulpit is ever this earth's foremost part. All the rest comes in its rear. The pulpit leads the world. 
From thence it is that the storm of God's wrath is first described, and the bow must bear the earliest brunt. From thence it is that the god of breezes, fair and foul, is first invoked for favorable winds. Yes, the world's a ship on its passage out, and not a voyage complete, and the pulpit is its prow. Chapter 9. The Sermon. Father Mapple rose, and in a mild voice of unassuming authority, ordered the scattered people to condense. Starboard gangway there. Stand away to larboard. Larboard gangway to starboard. Midships, midships. There was a low rumbling of heavy sea boots among the benches, and a still slighter shuffling of women's shoes, and all was quiet again, and every eye on the preacher. He paused a little. Then, kneeling in the pulpit's bows, folded his large brown hands across his chest, uplifted his closed eyes, and offered a prayer so deeply devout that he seemed kneeling and praying at the bottom of the sea. This ended in prolonged, solemn tones like the continual tolling of a bell in a ship that is foundering at sea in a fog. In such tones he commenced reading the following hymn, but changing his manner toward the concluding stanzas burst forth with appealing exultation and joy. The ribs and terrors in the whale arched over me a dismal gloom, while all God's sunlit waves rolled by and lift me deepening down to doom. I saw the opening maw of hell with endless pains and sorrows there, which none but they that feel can tell. Oh, I was plunging to despair. In black distress I called my God when I could scarce believe him mine. He bowed his ear to my complaints, no more the wail did me confine. With speed he flew to my relief as on a radiant dolphin born, yet awful, bright as lightning shone, the face of my deliverer God. My song forever shall record that terrible and joyful hour. I give the glory to my God, his all and mercy and the power. Nearly all joined in singing this hymn, which swelled high enough above the howling of the storm. A brief pause ensued, the preacher slowly turning over the leaves of the Bible, and at last, folding his hand down upon the proper page, said, Beloved shipmates, clinch the last verse of the first chapter of Jonah. And God had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of the scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us in this prophet. What a noble thing is that canticle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. We feel the flood surging over us. We sound with him to the kelpy bottom of the waters, a seaweed, and all the slime of the sea is about us. But what is this lesson that the book of Jonah teaches? Shipmates, it is a two-stranded lesson. 
a lesson for us all as sinful men and a lesson to me as a pilot of the living God. As sinful men, it is a lesson to us all because it is a story of the sin, hard-heartedness, suddenly awakened fears, the swift punishment, repentance, prayers, and finally the deliverance and joy of Jonah. As with all sinners among men, the sin of this son of Amittai was in his willful disobedience of the command of God. Never mind now what that command was or how conveyed, which he found a hard command. But all things that God would have us do are hard for us to do. Remember that. And hence, he oftener commands us than endeavors to persuade. And if we obey God, we must disobey ourselves. And it is in this disobeying ourselves wherein the hardness of obeying God consists. With this sin of disobedience in him, Jonah still further flouts at God by seeking to flee from him. He thinks that a ship made by men will carry him into countries where God does not reign, but only the captains of this earth. He skulks about the wharves of Joppa and seeks a ship that's bound for Tarshish. There lurks perhaps a hitherto unheeded meaning here. By all accounts, Tarshish could have been no other city than the modern Cadiz. That's the opinion of learned men. And where is Cadiz shipmates? Cadiz is in Spain, as far by water from Joppa as Jonah could have possibly sailed in those ancient days when the Atlantic was an almost unknown sea. Because Joppa, modern Jaffa shipmates, is the most easterly coast of the Mediterranean, the Syrian, the Tarshish, or Cadiz, more than 2,000 miles to the westward from that, just outside of the Straits of Gibraltar, is Cadiz. See ye not then, shipmates, that Jonah sought to flee worldwide from God. Miserable man, oh, most contemptible and worthy of all scorn, with slouched hat and guilty eye skulking from his god, prowling among the shipping like a vile burglar hastening to cross the seas, so disordered, self-condemning in his look, that had there been policemen in those days, Jonah on the mere suspicion of something wrong had been arrested ere he touched a deck. How plainly he's a fugitive. No baggage, not a hat box, valise, or carpet bag. No friends accompany him to the wharf with their adieu. At last, after much dodging search, he finds the Tarshish ship receiving the last items of her cargo, and as he steps on board to see its captain in the cabin, all the sailors for the moment detest from hoisting in the goods to mark the stranger's evil eye. Jonah sees this, but in vain he tries to look all ease and confidence, in vain essays his wretched smile. Strong intuitions of the man assure the mariners he cannot be innocent. In there gained some way, but still serious, one whispers to the other, Jack, he's robbed a widow. Or, Joe, you mark him, he's a bigamist. Or, 
Harry lad, I guess he's the adulterer what broke the jail in Old Gomorrah or be like, one of the missing murderers from Sodom. Another runs to read the bill that's stuck against the spile upon the wharf in which the ship is moored, offering 500 gold coins for the apprehension of a parricide and containing a description of his person. He reads and looks from Jonah to the bill. While all his sympathetic shipmates now crowd round Jonah, prepared to lay their hands on him, frightened Jonah trembles, and summoning all his boldness to his face, only looks so much more a coward. He will not confess himself suspected, but that itself is strong suspicion. So he makes the best of it, and when the sailors find him not to be the man that is advertised, they let him pass, and he descends into the cabin. Who's there? cries the captain at his busy desk, hurriedly making out his papers for the customs. Who's there? Oh, how that harmless question mangles Jonah. For the instant, he almost turns and flees again, but he rallies. I seek a passage in this ship to Tarshish. How soon sail ye, sir? Thus far the busy captain had not looked up to Jonah. Though the man now stands before him, no sooner does he hear that hollow voice than he darts a scrutinizing glance. We sail with the coming tide, at last he slowly answered, still intently eyeing Jonah. No sooner, sir? Soon enough for any honest man that goes a passage. Ha! Jonah, that's another stab. But he swiftly calls away the captain from that scent. I'll sail with ye, he says. The passage money, how much is that? I'll pay now. For it is particularly written, shipmates, as if that were a thing not to be overlooked in this history, that he paid the fare thereof, ere the craft did sail. And taken within the context, this is full of meaning. Now Jonah's captain, shipmates, was one of wh whose discernment detects crime in any, but whose cupidity exposes it only in the penniless. In this world, shipmates, sin that pays its way can travel freely and without a passport, whereas virtue, if a pauper, is stopped at all frontiers. So Jonah's captain prepares to test the length of Jonah's purse, ere he judge him openly. He charges him thrice the usual sum and is assented to. Then the captain knows that Jonah is a fugitive but at the same time resolves to help a flight that paves its rear with gold. Yet when Jonah fairly takes out his purse, prudent suspicions still molest the captain. He rings every coin to find a counterfeit, not a forger anyway, he mutters, and Jonah is put down for his passage. Point out my stateroom, sir, says Jonah now. I'm travel-weary, I need sleep. Thou lookest like it, says the captain. There's thy room. Jonah enters and would lock the door, but the lock contains no key. Hearing him foolishly fumbling there, the captain laughs slowly to himself and mutters something about the doors of convict cells never being allowed to be locked within. All dressed and dusty as he is, Jonah throws himself into his berth and finds the little stateroom ceiling almost resting on his forehead. The air is close. And Jonah gasps, then, in that contracted hole sunk too beneath the ship's waterline, Jonah feels the heralding presentiment of that stifling hour when the whale shall hold him in the smallest of its bowels wards. 
screwed at its axis against the side, a swinging lamp silently oscillates in Jonah's room, and the ship heeling over towards the wharf with the weight of the last bales received, the lamp, flame and all, though in slight motion, still maintains a permanent obliquity with reference to the room, though in truth infallibly straight itself in but made obvious the false, lying levels among which it hung. The lamp alarms and frightens Jonah. As lying in his berth, his tormented eyes roll round the place, and thus, thus far, successful fugitive finds no refuge for his restless glance. But that contradiction in the lamp more and more appalls him. The floor, the ceiling, and the side all are awry. Oh, so my conscience hangs in me, he groans, straight upwards, so it burns, but the chambers of my soul are all in crookedness. Like one who after a night of drunken revelry hies to his bed, still reeling, but with conscience yet picking at him, as the plungings of the Roman racehorse, but so much the more strike his steel tags into him, as one who in a miserable plight still turns and turns in giddy anguish, praying God for annihilation until the fit be passed, and at last amid the whirl of woe he feels a deep stupor steals over him, as over a man who bleeds to death, for conscience is the wound and there's naught to staunch it, so after sore wrestlings in his birth, Jonah's progeny of prodigious misery drags him drowning down to sleep. And now, the time of tide has come. The ship casts off her cables and from the deserted wharf, the uncheered ship for Tarshish, all careening, glides to sea. That ship, my friends, was the first of recorded smugglers. The contraband was Jonah. But the sea rebels. He will not bear the wicked burden. A dreadful storm comes on. The ship is like to break. But now when the bosun calls all hands to light her, when boxes, bales, and jars are clattering overboard, when the wind is shrieking and the men are yelling and every plank thunders with trampling feet right over Jonah's head, in all this raging tumult, Jonah sleeps his hideous sleep. He sees no black sky and raging sea, feels not the reeling timbers, and little hears he or heeds he the far rush of the mighty whale, which even now with open mouth is cleaving seas after him. Aye, shipmates, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, a berth in a cabin as I have taken it, and was fast asleep. But the frightened master comes to him and shrieks in his dead ear, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise! Startled from his lethargy by that direful cry, Jonah staggers to his feet and stumbling to the deck, grasps a shroud to look out upon the sea. Below at that moment he is sprung upon by a panther billow leaping over the bulwarks. Wave after wave thus leaps into the ship, and finding no speedy vent fore or aft, till the mariners come nigh to drowning while yet afloat, and ever as the white moon shows her affrighted face from the steep gullies of the blackness overhead, aghast Jonah sees the rearing bowsprit pointing high upward, but soon beat downward again toward the tormented deep. 
Terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. In all his cringing attitudes, the god-fugitive is now too plainly known. The sailors mark him. More and more certain grow their suspicions of him. And at last, fully to test the truth by referring the whole matter to high heaven, they fall to casting lots to see which of those caused this great tempest upon them. The lot is Jonah's. That discovered, then how furiously they mob him with their questions. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? Thy country? What people? But mark now, my shipmates, the behavior of poor Jonah. The eager mariners but ask him who he is and where from. Whereas they not only receive an answer to those questions, but likewise another answer to a question not put by them. But the unsolicited answer is forced from Jonah by the hard hand of God that is upon him. I am a Hebrew, he cries, and then I fear the Lord God of heaven who hath made the sea and the dry land. Fear him, O Jonah? Ay, well mightiest thou fear the Lord God then. Straight away he now goes on to make a full confession. Whereupon the mariners become more and more appalled, but still are pitiful. For when Jonah, not yet supplicating God for mercy, since he but too well knew the darkness of his deserts, that wretched Jonah cries out to them to take him and cast him forth into the sea, for he knew that for his sake this great tempest was upon them. They mercifully turn from him and seek by other means to save the ship, but all in vain. The indignant gale howls louder, and then with one hand raised invokingly to God, with the other they not unreluctantly lay hold of Jonah. And now, behold Jonah taken up as an anchor and dropped into the sea, when instantly an oily calmness floats out from the east, and the sea is still, as Jonah carries down the gale with him, leaving smooth water behind. He goes down in the whirling heart of such a masterless commotion that he scarce heeds the moment when he drops, seething, into the yawning jaws awaiting him. The whale shoots to all his ivory teeth, like so many white bolts upon his prison. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord out of the fish's belly, but observe his prayer and learn a weighty lesson. For sinful as he is, Jonah does not weep and wail for direct deliverance. He feels that his dreadful punishment is just. He leaves all his deliverance to God, contenting himself with this, that spite all of his pains and pangs, he will still look upwards towards his holy temple, and here, shipmates, is true and faithful repentance, not clamorous for pardon, but grateful for punishment. And how pleasing to God was this conduct in Jonah is shown in the eventual deliverance of him from the sea and the whale. Shipmates, I do not place Jonah before you to be copied for his sin, but I do place him before you as a model for repentance. Sin not. But if you do, take heed to repent of it like Jonah. 
While he was speaking these words, the howling and shrieking, slanting storm without seemed to add new power to the preacher, who, when describing Jonah's sea storm, seemed tossed by a storm himself. His deep chest heaved as with a groundswell, his tossed arms seemed the warring elements at work, and the thunders that rolled away from off his swarthy brow, and the light leaping from his eye, made all the simple hearers look on him with a quick fear that was strange to them. There now came a lull in his look, as he silently turned over the leaves of the Bible once more and said at last, standing motionless with closed eyes for the moment, seeming to commune with God and himself. But again he leaned over towards the people and bowing his head lowly with an aspect of the deepest yet manliest humility, he spake these words. Shipmates, God has laid but one hand upon you. Both his hands press upon me. I have read ye by what murky light may be mine the lesson that Jonah teaches to all sinners and therefore to ye and still more to me, for I am a greater sinner than ye. And now how gladly would I come down from this masthead and sit on the hatches there where you sit and listen as you listen while some one of you reads me that other and more awful lesson which Jonah teaches to me as a pilot of the living God. How being an anointed pilot prophet or speaker of true things and bidden by the Lord to sound those unwelcome truths in the ears of wicked Nineveh, Jonah, appalled at the hostility he should raise, fled from his mission and sought to escape his duty and his God by taking ship at Joppa. But God is everywhere. Tarshish he never reached. As we have seen, God came upon him in the whale and swallowed him down to living gulfs of doom and with swift slantings tore him along into the midst of the seas where the eddying depths sucked him ten thousand fathoms down and the weeds were wrapped about his head and all the watery world of woe bowled him over. Yet, even then, beyond the reach of any plummet, out of the belly of hell, when the whale grounded upon the ocean's utmost bones, even then, God heard the engulfed, repenting prophet when he cried. Then God spake unto the fish, and from the shuddering cold and the blackness of the sea, the whale came breaching up towards the warm, pleasant sun, and all the delights of air and earth, and vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. When the word of the Lord came a second time, and Jonah, bruised and beaten, his ears like two seashells still multitudinously murmuring the ocean, Jonah did the Almighty's bidding, and what was that, shipmates? To preach the truth in the face of falsehood. That was it. This, shipmates, this is that other lesson, and woe to that pilot of the living God who slights it. Woe to him whom this world charms from gospel duty. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil upon the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. Woe to him who seeks to please rather than to appall. Woe to him whose good name is more to him than goodness.
Woe to him who in this world courts not dishonor. Woe to him who would not be true, even though to be false were salvation. Yes, woe to him who, as the great pilot Paul has it, while preaching to others himself, is a castaway. He dropped and fell away from himself for a moment. Then, lifting his face to them again, showed a deep joy in his eyes as he cried out with a heavenly enthusiasm, But, oh, shipmates, on the starboard hand of every woe there is a sure delight, and a higher the top of that delight than the bottom of the woe is deep. Is not the main truck higher than the kelson is low? Delight is to him a far, far upward and inward delight. Who against the proud gods and commodores of this earth ever stands forth his own inexorable self? Delight is to him whose strong arms yet support him when the ship of his base treacherous world has gone down beneath him. Delight is to him who gives no quarter to the truth and kills, burns, and destroys all sin though he pluck it out from under the robes of senators and judges. Delight! Top gallant delight is to him who acknowledges no law, O our Lord, but the Lord his God and his only patriot is to heaven. Delight is to him whom all the waves of the billows of the seas of the boisterous mob can never shake from this sure keel of ages, and eternal delight and deliciousness will be his who come to lay him down, can say with his final breath, O Father, Chiefly known to me by thy rod, mortal or immortal, here I die. I have striven to be thine more than to be this world's or mine own. Yet this is nothing. I leave eternity to thee. For what is man that he should live out the lifetime of his God? He said no more, but slowly waving a benediction, covered his face with his hands, and so remained kneeling, till all the people had departed and he was left alone in the place. Chapter 10 A Bosom Friend Returning to the Spouter Inn from the chapel, I found Queequeg there quite alone, he having left the chapel before the benediction sometime. He was sitting on a bench before the fire with his feet on the stove hearth, and in one hand was holding close up to his face that little negro idol of his, peering hard into its face, and with a jackknife gently whittling away at its nose, meanwhile humming to himself in his heathenish way. But being now interrupted, he put up the image, and pretty soon, going to the table, took up a large book there, and placing it on his lap, began counting the pages with deliberate regularity, at every fiftieth page, as I fancied, stopping a moment, looking vacantly around him, and giving an utterance to a long-drawn gurgling whistle of astonishment. He would then begin again at the next fifty, seeming to commence at number one each time as though he could not count more than fifty, and it was only by such a large number of fifties being found together that his astonishment at the multitude of pages was excited. With much interest I sat watching him. Savage though he was, and hideously marred about the face, at least to my taste, his countenance yet had something in it which was by no means disagreeable. You cannot hide the soul. Through all his unearthly tattooings, I thought I saw the traces of a simple, honest heart, and in his large, deep eyes, fiery black and bold, there seemed tokens of a spirit that would dare a thousand devils. 
And besides all this, there was a certain lofty bearing about the pagan, which even his uncouthness could not altogether maim. He looked like a man who had never cringed and never had a creditor. Whether it was, too, that his head being shaved, his forehead was drawn out in freer and brighter relief and looked more expansive than it otherwise would, this I will not venture to decide, but certain it was his head was phrenologically an excellent one. It may seem ridiculous, but it reminded me of George Washington's head as seen in the popular busts of him. It had the same long, regularly graded, retreating slope from above the brows, which were likewise very projecting, like two long promontories thickly wooded on top. Queequeg was George Washington cannibalistically developed. Whilst I was thus closely scanning him, half pretending, meanwhile, to be looking out at the storm from the casement, he never heeded my presence, never troubled himself with so much as a single glance, but appeared wholly occupied with counting the pages of the marvelous book. Considering how sociably we had been sleeping together the night previous, and especially considering the affectionate arm I had found thrown over me upon waking this morning, I thought this indifference of his very strange, but... Savages are strange beings. At times you do not know exactly how to take them. At first they are overdrawn. Their calm self-collectedness of simplicity seems a Socratic wisdom. I had noticed also that Queequeg never consorted at all or but very little with the other seamen in the inn. He made no advances whatever, appeared to have no desire to enlarge the circle of his acquaintances. All this struck me as mighty singular, yet upon second thoughts there was something almost sublime in it. Here was a man, some 20,000 miles from home, by the way of Cape Horn, that is, which was the only way he could get there, thrown among people as strange to him as though he were in the planet Jupiter. And yet, he seemed entirely at his ease, preserving the utmost serenity, content with his own companionship, almost equal to himself. Surely this was a touch of fine philosophy, though no doubt he had never heard there was such a thing as that. But perhaps to be true philosophers, we mortals should not be conscious of so living or so striving. So soon as I hear that such or such a man gives himself out for a philosopher, I conclude that like the dyspeptic old woman, he must have broken his digester. As I sat there in that now lonely room, the fire burning low in that mild stage where after its first intensity has warmed the air, it then only glows to be looked at. The evening shades and phantoms gathered round the casements and peering in upon us silent, solitary twain, the storm booming without in solemn swells, I began to be sensible of strange feelings. I felt a melting in me. No more my splintered heart and maddened hand were turned against the wolfish world. This soothing savage had redeemed it. There he sat, his very indifference speaking a nature in which there lurked no civilized hypocrisies or bland deceits. Wild he was, a very sight of sights to see, yet I began to feel myself mysteriously drawn towards him. And those same things that would have repelled most others, they were the very magnets that thus drew me. I'll try a pagan friend, I thought, since Christian kindness has proved but hollow courtesy. I drew my bench near him and made some friendly signs and hints, doing my best to talk with him meanwhile. 
At first, he little noticed these advances, but presently, upon my referring to his last night's hospitalities, he made out to ask whether we were again to be bedfellows. I told him yes, whereat I thought he looked pleased, perhaps a little complimented. We then turned over the book together, and I endeavored to explain to him the purpose of the printing and the meaning of the few pictures that were in it. Thus I soon engaged his interest, and from that we went out to jabbering the best we could about the various outer sights to be seen in this famous town. Soon I proposed a social smoke, and producing his pouch and tomahawk, he quietly offered me a puff. And then we sat exchanging puffs from that wild pipe of his, and keeping it regularly passing between us. If there yet lurked any ice of indifference toward me in the pagan's breast, this pleasant, genial smoke we had soon thought it out and left us cronies. He seemed to take to me quite as naturally and unbiddenly as I to him, and when our smoke was over he pressed his forehead against mine and clasped me round the waist and said that henceforth we were married, meaning, in his country's phrase, that we were bosom friends he would gladly die for me if need should be, and a countryman this sudden flame of friendship would have seemed far too premature, a thing to be much distrusted, but in this simple savage those old rules would not apply. After supper and another social chat and smoke, we went to our room together. He made me a present of his embalmed head, took out his enormous tobacco wallet, and groping under the tobacco, drew out some thirty dollars in silver, then spreading them on the table and mechanically dividing them into two equal portions, pushed one of them towards me and said it was mine. I was going to remonstrate, but he silenced me by pouring them into my trousers' pockets. I let them stay. He then went about his evening prayers, took out his idol, and removed the paper fireboard. By certain signs and symptoms, I thought he seemed anxious for me to join him, but well knowing what was to follow, I deliberated a moment whether, in case he invited me, I would comply or otherwise. I was a good Christian, born and bred in the bosom of the infallible Presbyterian Church. How then could I unite with this wild idolater in worshipping his piece of wood? But what is worship, thought I? Do you suppose now, Ishmael, that the magnanimous god of heaven and earth, pagans and all included, can possibly be jealous of an insignificant bit of black wood? Impossible! But what is worship? To do the will of God. That is worship. And what is the will of God? To do to my fellow man what I would have my fellow man do to me. That is the will of God. Now, Queequeg is my fellow man. And what do I wish that this Queequeg would do to me? Why, unite with me in my particular Presbyterian form of worship. Consequently, I must then unite with him in his. Ergo, I must turn idolater. So I kindled the shavings, helped prop up the innocent little idol, offered him burnt biscuit with Queequeg, salaamed before him twice or thrice, kissed his nose, and that done, we undressed and went to bed, at peace with our own consciences and all the world. But we did not go to sleep without some little chat. How it is, I know not, but there is no place like a bed for confidential disclosures between friends. Man and wife, they say, there open the very bottom of their souls to each other, and some old couples often lie and chat over old times till nearly morning. Thus then, in our heart's honeymoon, lay I and Queequeg, a cozy, loving pair.
Chapter 11. Nightgown. We had lain thus in bed, chatting and napping at short intervals, and Queequeg now and then affectionately throwing his brown tattooed legs over mine, and then drawing them back. So entirely sociable and free and easy we were, when at last, by reason of our confabulations, what little nappishness remained in us altogether departed, and we felt like getting up again, though daybreak was yet some way down the future. Yes, we became very wakeful so much that our recumbent position began to grow wearisome, and little by little we found ourselves sitting up and the clothes well tucked around us, leaning against the headboard with our four knees drawn up close together and our two noses bending over them as if our knee pans were warming pans. We felt very nice and snug, and more so since it was so chilly out of doors, indeed out of the bedclothes too, seeing that there was no fire in the room. The more so, I say, because truly to enjoy bodily warmth some small part of you must be cold, for there is no quality in this world that is not what it is merely by contrast. Nothing exists in itself. If you flatter yourself that you are all over comfortable and have been so a long time, then you cannot be said to be comfortable anymore. But if, like Queequeg and me in the bed, the tip of your nose or the crown of your head is slightly chilled, why then, indeed, in the general consciousness you feel most delightfully and unmistakably warm. For this reason, a sleeping apartment should never be furnished with a fire, which is one of the luxurious discomforts of the rich, for the height of this sort of deliciousness is to have nothing but the blanket between you and your snugness and the cold of the outer air. Then, there you lie like one warm spark in the heart of an arctic crystal. We had been sitting in this crouching manner for some time when all at once I thought I would open my eyes for when between sheets, whether by day or by night and whether asleep or awake, I have a way of always keeping my eyes shut in order the more to concentrate the snugness of being in bed. Because no man can ever feel his own identity aright except his eyes be closed, as if darkness were indeed the proper element of our essences, though light be more congenial to our clayey part. Upon opening my eyes then, and coming out of my own pleasant and self-created darkness into the imposed and coarse outer gloom of the unilluminated twelve o'clock at night, I experienced a disagreeable revulsion. Nor did I at all object to the hint from Queequeg that perhaps it were best to strike a light, seeing that we were so wide awake, and besides, he felt a strong desire to have a few puffs from his tomahawk. Be it said that, though I had felt such a strong repugnance to his smoking in the bed the night before, yet see how elastic our stiff prejudices grow when love once comes to bend them. For now, I liked nothing better than to have Queequeg smoking by me, even in bed, because he seemed to be full of such serene household joy then. I no more felt unduly concerned for the landlord's policy of insurance. I was only alive to the condensed confidential comfortableness of sharing a pipe and a blanket with a real friend. With our shaggy jackets drawn about our shoulders, we now passed the tomahawk from one to the other, till slowly there grew over us a blue hanging tester of smoke, illuminated by the flame of the new-lit lamp. Whether it was that this undulating tester rolled the savage away to far distant scenes, I know not. But he now spoke of his native island, and, eager to hear his history, I begged him to go on and tell it.
He gladly complied, though at the time I but ill comprehended not a few of his words, yet subsequent disclosures, when I had become more familiar with his broken phraseology, now enabled me to present the whole story such as it may prove in the mere skeleton I give. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.